You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net from me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon them when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare them. Let him fall into it to be to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the, the poor? From him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now turn with me to John chapter 17. We will read verses 6 through 26. John seventeen six through 26. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given, given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I've guarded them, and they, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, been, or they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, through their word, that they may also... All be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a thing to consider, the son of the living God. Uh, The one who, Paul tells us, holds all things together by the word of his power. Even right now, prayed for us. That he asked his father to act on our behalf. So God, I pray that that just glorious truth would land on us. God, that we'd receive that truth with humility this morning. Not arrogance or presumption, like, well, of course Jesus would pray for me. Rather, the humility of like, who am I that Jesus, the son of the living God, would even consider me in his prayers? And then God, knowing that, treasuring that, rejoicing in that, may we attend to the actual words of his prayer this morning. In your name we pray, amen. An odd thing happens anytime I fly or I go anywhere where I'm talking to people with whom um, they don't know me and I don't know them. Um, Last weekend, uh, I was at a soccer camp with my son in Virginia, um, and there are lots of uh, soccer parents there. I'm not really a soccer, I guess I technically am a soccer parent, but I don't know much about soccer. It doesn't make sense to me why they call off sides when they do. Um, but while at this soccer camp, I ran into a, a, um, an occurrence that happens um, almost everywhere I go, um, in which uh, when you sit down and someone begins to ask, you ask them, what do you do? I've actually started learning to stop asking what someone else does. Um, and then they ask what I do. Um, and the, the very first thought in my head is, how do I keep them from hating me? Um, this person's going to immediately hate me. It's not even how do I get them to like me. It's just how do I keep them from hating me? And, and I think that question, um, that, that concern, you know, plagues all of us in some ways, right? Like we go into any new social context, you move into a na- new neighborhood, you meet your neighbors, and one of the most fundamental questions that you ask um, in those circumstances is not just how do I get them to like me? But maybe even more fundamentally, um, um, at the heart of the matter is, how do I make sure they don't hate me? Um, and it's that question which I think um, haunts not only us as individuals trying to navigate a world like ours, um, but it also haunts the, the, the whole church, um, the, the whole actually local church. Like the, the question becomes for us as a church oftentimes, and, and I will argue sinfully, How do we make sure our neighbors don't hate us? How do we make sure the world doesn't hate us? 
Um, maybe even, and, and we'll cross the line into, how, how do we get them to like us? Uh, and these questions become even more weighty as we consider that, that, that the shift that seems or at least feels like it's taken place, um, not just over the last three years, but really over the last 50 years, um, as it seems to us, it seems to me anyway, it feels like um, that the world around us, the society around us, our neighbors in general, are more hostile to Christian doctrine and Christian ethics than it really ever has been. Or it has been at least in our lifetime or maybe our parents' and our grandparents' lifetime. Like, like if that question, how do I keep people from hating me, um, really kind of camps out in, in, in our psyches, in our minds, in our um, daily kind of list of things we fear or, or um, are anxiety-ridden about. Um, can you imagine how that fear, that concern gets magnified and begins to affect all kinds of different behaviors and ways of thinking in really, really weird ways? And here's what I mean by the hostility in our current culture. There was a way of thinking about men and women or about sex um, or about uh, homosexuality or about any number of issues that, that say 50 years ago, it was just most people tended to think about it that way. Whether they were um, really, really active in church or not very active in church, um, there was just a general way of thinking about those issues um, that, that was fairly consistent, at least mostly consistent with um, the, the vast majority of what Christians have always believed throughout all time. And then there was a shift that took place such that um, uh, what Christians have always believed about these things for the vast majority um, uh, of, of all Christians over all of time um, went from being kind of generally what most people everywhere believed, um, at least in kind of a Western society, um, to being the thing that like some of those odd people over there believe. And then another shift began to take place such that it was no longer like, hey, there's some odd people, um, I guess it works for them, but they don't have sex outside of marriage. Weird. I mean, it shifted from that to um, people who believe what almost all Christians have believed for all time uh, about sexuality, about gender, about um, homosexuality, about any of these kind of hot topics in our day. Um, people who believe those things are not just odd, but they're evil, they're bigoted. You see that trajectory, how that's proceeded across time. Um, living right now in this moment where, where that kind of cultural shift it at least feels like it's taking place, a awakens in us this kind of fear. What if people will hate us? I don't want to be hated. I'm a nice guy. I'm funny. I'm very athletic. I'm likable. I'm friendly and I make really good brisket. What if people hate me? Um, I want us to take the next three weeks and ask the question, how do we live in the world that we live in right now faithfully? Um, what situation should we expect? Like expectations um, are, they're half the game. Like understanding, hey, th this is what you should expect that faithful living will produce in the midst 
um, uh, of a world, in the midst of, say, a society that's largely marked by secularism. Here's how you should expect neighbors to respond. Um, um, and, and living with kind of appropriate expectations of what faithfulness will feel like, the kind of situation that that will create in the world. Then in light of that situation, how then has God called us to live in the midst of that situation? And so what we're going to do is today we're going to talk about the situation primarily. But we're going to kind of tip our hat because I can't help myself um, to what I believe God has called us to do in the midst of that situation. But in the next two weeks, we're going to drill down into a couple different passages from Paul in the New Testament as he describes the exact situation that Jesus prays into existence right here in in chapter 17 and, and gives the church surprising, surprising a surprising calling or vocation in how are they to live in the midst of that situation. And so that's my goal for the next three weeks is in the world that God has situated us in, in this particular moment and time in Denver, Colorado, um, what should faithfulness feel like in terms of our interactions with um, and our relationship with um, the, the, the secular world that surrounds us? And secondly, in the light of that situation, God's actually called us to live in a way that's um, it, it, it's not it's not intuitive. It's not how you think you might ought to live. Like if if um, you find yourself in a hostile situation, um, that the expectation might be the intuitive thing might be then you live hostily. Is that the right way? Um, you live at war in the midst of the world. And Paul does use war language, but it's war language that's strange. It's surprising. It's a kind of war that seeks the good of our neighbors, um, even and particularly the neighbors that hate us. And so we want to talk about those things and think about those things together, and I can think of no better place to start than John 13 through 17. So I've been gone for four weeks, and so you get a sermon on five chapters of Scripture today. We will be here until three um, not, not really, but maybe we'll see how things go. Um, John 13 through 17 is one of my absolute favorite places to go, um, in all of the Bible, let alone just in the gospels themselves. You see in John 13 through 17, Jesus is gathered with his disciples and begins to instruct them. Um, kind of, it's his last kind of teaching that, that he has with his disciples prior to going to the cross Um, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension. So what we have in John 13 through 17 is Jesus sitting down with his disciples. um, And and for these five chapters, or at least the first four of these five chapters, um, outlining for them um, the, the, the promises of God that they can anticipate in the light of what he's about to do with the cross, um, the, the situation that they, they can anticipate finding themselves in, in light of, of him going to the cross and his resurrection, and the promise of the Spirit of God to come upon them, and then third, how they're to, to live in the midst of that. And he does that for the first four, so 13 through 16, he outlines those things, and then in chapter 17, he prays for them. And we have, even in that model, something beautiful and central that I want us to see this morning. It is never enough merely to have good doctrine in your head. It's never enough merely to kind of have um, all of your boxes checked uh, around your own Christian ethics and morality and, and living according to the commands of God. 
It's never enough merely to kind of um, understand cognitively um, the nature that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins and raised from the dead that you could kind of pass if we gave a test on a Sunday morning. That would be fun. I hand out a piece of paper. Say, please remain silent. Don't look on your neighbor's pieces of paper. Husbands, what is the cross? What is justification? Write these down, turn them in, and then you can take communion and leave if you got over a 70. Um, like that, that would be interesting, right? Like, like, but you could pass all of that. You could get all of that right. You could, you could understand the Bible's teaching on um, um, kind of all the ins and outs on how you're to live and how you're be, to behave in the world according to God's law and according to God's commands. I um, mean, in light of the gospel, you could get all of that right. But, but apart from the spirit of God and the grace of God, taking those things up um, in you and in this community, it, it lacks life. Jesus outlined I me. Mean, this is Jesus, like, right? like not, not me, like way better than me. Most effective, powerful communicator of the word of God ever. And he, he communicates the, the clearest declaration of what God intends to do, how they're supposed to live, what their life is going to look like um, after uh, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus occurs. But his teaching wasn't enough. He then stops and comes before the Father and prays. The farmer can plant and water, but it's God who gives the fruit. So we live in the midst of all of the things that we're going to talk about over the next three weeks. All of them. Completely and absolutely dependent upon the power and the grace and the mercy of God. The kind of faithfulness and courage and humility and love that the text that we're going to look at over the next three weeks require of us, call us to, requires nothing less than the very presence, empowering presence of our God with us being gracious to us, being merciful to us, and sending us into the world to bear witness faithfully about who he is and what he's done in Jesus and what he's commanded. So so from a macro level, as we look at 13 through 17, I just want you to start by seeing that. Jesus teaches, and then he prays that the Father would empower that teaching for them and end them. Um, in light of that, it's important to understand that chapter 17 comes as kind of the, the accumulation of 13 through 16. So it's like God, um, Jesus teaches them in 13 through 16, and then he, he condenses all of those chapters, all, all four of those chapters, into one prayer. And so we're going to um, look in kind of a detailed way um, at a handful of things that arise in chapter 17, but you're going to understand better um, kind of the, the, the big picture of what Jesus is praying for. If I can summarize for you, and this is where it turns into five sermons instead of one, which is why we'll be here till three, um, what 13 through 16 outlines. And I'm going to do it quickly. So I'm going to summarize these chapters so you can know this is kind of what Jesus teaches. So then we turn and actually start paying attention very closely to chapter 17. I mean, you can understand uh, in kind of a condensed way 
um, this is what he's been aiming at. Chapter 13, um, this set of teaching leading to a prayer begins with um, Jesus removing his cloak um, and, and getting a wash basin and washing his disciples' feet. And in doing so, giving them a model for their communal life together in that we are to be a people who serve one another, who wash one another, who care for one another, um, who, who, who see one another as, um, as better than, like, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. One of the things that should mark the community of Jesus' disciples, of those who love him and know him, um, as we look to Jesus, the son of the living God, the one that holds the world in power and in being by the word of his power, and he takes off his robe and he kneels down and he washes his disciples' feet and he says to them, "If I, you call me Lord, you call me teacher, and if I do this, how much more should you do this for each other? One of the things that should mark the people of God that I pray marks this community is that we race, we, um, we compete in showing honor to one another, in serving one another, in meeting one another's needs, in caring deeply for one another. And so that's where Jesus begins here, calling his disciples to a kind of humility kind of washing one another with a word, a kind of care for one another, a kind of meeting practical, really practical needs and service to one another. And then in chapter 14, he says, um, he, 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 in describing, kind of using a metaphor um, for where he's going um, um, and heading to the cross and in his resurrection, um, he, he essentially articulates that I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, if you remember that, that's just a famous text, a, a comforting text, that Jesus is going um, and going to the cross and in his resurrection, um, he is going to the Father and in going to the Father, um, he, he, he promises the disciples, the Father has a house and in this house is many rooms and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And now it's important that we, um, I remember uh, growing up and I always Imagine this text as God has a really cool mansion and I had, um, I had a really rich friend and they had a, an entire room dedicated to games. Like they had a pinball machine. Some of you have never played a pinball machine because you're young. This is the best. And then they had laser tag guns so you could run around their house and play laser tag. And what I imagined when Jesus in this text talks about a house and his father has a big house and a house with many rooms, um, some of you grew up in the church, remember big, big house. Um, and, and you go, and, and what Jesus is doing is he's prepping the game room. And I'm going to get the game room, and I'm going to go and live in this cool house. In other words, it was structural. But, but that, that's to misunderstand the language of household um, in chapter 14. Um, household means family. It means, um, it has to do with sonship and, and, and belonging to the family of God, inheriting um, the, the fullness of the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God. Um, what Jesus says is, my father has a house. He has a family. He has a household. Um, and, and in this household, there are many, many rooms. There's, um, it's not a restrictive household. It's, it's a big one. Um, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. In going to the cross, I'm making a place for you in the family of God. That's the language in chapter 14. So here's an emphasis on, a central emphasis on grace. Um, Jesus Christ has come. He has died in our place, bearing our sins, uh, that we can go and live in the Father's household, belonging to the Father, covenantally belonging to the Father, taking on his actual 
name, receiving his name. He then moves in chapter 15, the, the, the language of the vineyard and bearing fruit in the vineyard of God, that we are a people who are to, um, he, he builds a model of the Christian life that we abide in God's love. In other words, we, we, we trust in, we rest in, uh, we, don't, we don't deviate from understanding what God has done for us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, resting in that declaration, that enactment of the love of God, um, then abide, because of that, we abide in the words of God, the commands of God, the promises of God, the law of God, the songs of God. And that, that then causes us by the Spirit's power to, to bear fruit in the world. Fruit that glorifies God, that honors God in every facet of our lives. And the, the, the result of that, he says, is joy. So he has now kind of outlined, hey, here's a way of treating one another, moving then to say, here's the promise of God. Here's, here's where you're headed in the light of the work I'm about to do on the cross. And third, now here's a model of discipleship, how you're to live in the world. I'm starting with the cross, starting with the gospel, moving out to abiding and resting and keeping the very words of God, all of the words of God. The result of that will be fruitfulness and joy. And then this transition happens at the end of chapter 15, which then leads us, um, and, and in 16, that leads us to where we're headed these three weeks. He promises them something in chapter 15. The world will hate you. Now that's not like a new verse. <laughs> Like written in 2020. Jesus going, eh, we should have added some stuff. Now this has been the promise of Jesus Christ from the very, very beginning. That all who desire to live a righteous life will be Persecuted. And I think maybe some of us have been around the church and we've heard those texts. But I think many of us don't count this as a promise, as an expectation. That the result of faithfulness to Jesus by his spirit then faithfulness everything he says in this book, that the result will be you will be hated. Like that's normative according to Jesus. Like that's normal. Not like, hey, just first century, there's gonna be a really big rough spot um, and we'll make it through it. And then it will be easy peasy. Everyone will think you're nice and cool and athletic and make good brisket. Like you'll get on an airplane and somebody asks what you do. And me especially because pastors are super Christians. Um, I'll sit down on the plane. And somebody will do, what, what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a pastor, a Christian pastor. And they'll go, wow, I've always wanted to meet one of you people. I love you guys. You're amazing. And look at you. You're even athletic. And I bet you make good brisket. Like, like, 
that's not how this works. The promise of Jesus is that you, the, the community that belongs to Jesus, the church, Trinity Church, Denver, if you hold fast to Jesus, if you abide in his love, um, in an abiding in his love, you then receive his words and long to live in light of his words and obey his words faithfully out in the world, publicly out in the world. You dare to live like a Christian everywhere. In your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Like your love for Jesus, your allegiance to Jesus comes out of your fingertips. It's just everywhere. And how you think and how you argue and how you smile and how you spend your money in everything you do. As you do that, as we do that together in the world, the promise that Jesus outlines then in chapters 15 and 16 You'll be hated. And summarizing, this all will be the fruit. This this kind of faithfulness and service and humility and love and a commitment to the promise of God that we belong to the household of God, having received his name, we belong to the family of God. Um, This will all be the, the, the result of, not your own self-effort, but the, the, the life of the Spirit of God among us and in us. So as you cling to Jesus, as you believe that the gospel is true, so maybe some of you here are, are not Christians, you don't really know how Christianity works. Here's how Christianity works. Um, uh, for, for a lot of people, they think the way that Christianity works is you do a bunch of good things. When you do a bunch of good things, then God accepts you and he loves you. And now you spend the rest of your life trying to do enough good things to make sure God keeps loving you. That, that's not what Christianity teaches. What Christianity teaches is um, we come to, um, we come to see Jesus on the cross and on the cross, he deals with our sins. He atones for them. You're like, You're no longer held accountable for your sins before God um, to all who trust him, to all who love him, um, to all who cling to Jesus and hope in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. And as your sins are forgiven and you rest in the work of Jesus, trusting in the work of Jesus, um, he, he sends his spirit to dwell among us. And that... Spirit, then we abide in the very presence of God, belonging to God, and we begin to bear fruit as the people of God in the midst of the world. Um, fruits of obedience and joy and righteousness. We're not supposed to be a dour people as we live in the midst of the world. We're supposed to be a, a happy people, like a really happy people with a really happy God. Living in the world, pursuing righteousness and goodness and mercy. Seeking to live faithfully and obey everything that God has commanded. And as you do that, in the power of the Spirit, trusting and resting in the work of Jesus for us on the cross, the result will be, the Bible says, that you'll be hated. That makes sense, right? You're happy. 
pursuing justice and goodness and mercy and truth. You'll be hated. So then Jesus turns and prays as he should, as we desperately need him to. As we live in that scenario, that situation. So I want us to look at four questions. One, who is Jesus praying for? Two, why is Jesus praying for them? Three, what are the means by which he wants his prayer for them to be answered? And four, how will this be accomplished? And that's when we'll end. I'm going to do all of that in nine minutes. My wife is hoping. Okay. One, who is Jesus praying for? Look at verse 9. I'm praying for them. Who is them in verse 9? Them is the ones whom he manifested God's name to, the Father's name to. It's them who were given to him out of the world by the Father. It's them who received the words that were given to them by Jesus. He revealed the name of God to them, the nature, the character, the covenant of God to them. We'll get into name in just a minute. He, he spoke to them the words of God and they received the words. So you've got one group of people defined two different ways. One, there are people that God in his sovereign mercy handed to Jesus. These people belong to you. How do you know who they are? They were the ones who, when they heard the name, the character, the nature of God's covenant, we're talking about that, and they heard the words of God, they received those, they held on to those, they believed those, they kept those. So that's the group of people that Jesus is praying for. And so you'll notice right off the bat something that Christians really try to avoid in our day, I think primarily because we don't want to be hated or we really want to be liked. There is at the heart of the whole story of the Bible beginning all the way back in Genesis 3, a division. That division ultimately will come to be divided. Um, that the dividing line and that division between two different humanities, um, two different um, kinds of people that exist in the world for, out, for all of eternity. Um, that division is not one of race. It's not one of socioeconomics. It's not one of language. It it's not, ha has nothing to do with um, kind of mere... Uh, cultural nuances, or if you like spicy food, or if you don't like spicy food. Um, uh, in fact, one of the, the, the craziest things is I think the world, all of humanity knows this division exists, and rather than deal with the division as it's defined by the Bible, we've, um, we have scrambled and scraped and done everything we could over the last 2,000 years to find new ways of dividing up the world so we wouldn't have to deal with the way that God divides the world. I think that's the heart of racism. 
think that's the, the heart of Marxist understandings of wealth. Or the new social Marxism. Constantly trying to find a way. We know there's a division. We know there's two groups. Everybody does. And rather than deal with the way that the Bible divides humanity, we come up with new ways of doing it. But Jesus divides the world between those who hear the word and refuse to receive it and those who hear the word and they receive it. So he prays for those who receive it. I want you to look and be comforted by this. And look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in them and believe in me through their word. So not just the disciples, but for us. Just to make it explicit. Jesus prayed for you. So that's the first thing. He's praying for those who belong to him, um, who are covenantally bound to him, who have received his name. It's the first question. Now, why is Jesus praying for us? Why? Look at verse 15. Um, and and the, the point here is to describe the situation that we're in. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So living in a world it's to greater and lesser degrees, depending on where you find yourself in the world and where you find yourself in history, um, it's openly hostile to the word of Jesus and even sometimes the name of Jesus. But often it's not his name, it's just his words. I think that's true in our day. I think most people are okay with the name Jesus. If you want to worship Jesus, great. But don't tell me what he commanded. Don't tell me anything about the law of God. Don't tell me about the kind of life that he commands. I think that's the kind of season we're in. You won't go to jail for saying, I love Jesus. You go to jail for saying, you won't go to jail. You'll be, uh, you'll be despised and declared a bigot for saying, I love Jesus. And I love what he says about everything. So he calls us as a people, bearing his name, having his word. Um, that word then empowered by the spirit, such that it becomes vibrant and alive and a lived reality. Not just something we cognitively know, but something that's actually enacted in our homes, in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, in our church community, in our life. It all gets um, enlivened and empowered by the spirit. And, and the world sees that and hates it. And he tells us here that there is at work in the world, in the ideologies of the world, um, in, in the powers and the, um, that, 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 that dominate this world, in the styles um, that, that orient this world, in the trends that kind of shape this world. There is a person, an evil one, at work in all of it. That, that's the situation. 
And in the midst of that, Jesus says, I don't want you to take them out of the world, the world that will persecute them, uh, the world that the author of Hebrews says will saw them in two and burn them alive and hate them and call them bigots and cancel them and fire them. Um, All the different things that could possibly be done and have been done in the history of the world on account of faithfulness to Jesus and his word. Um, I don't ask, Father, that you would take them out of that situation. Let that bother you for a second. If it didn't bother you, you didn't hear me. Jesus didn't pray that you'd get an easy life. He didn't pray that you'd get a life where everyone looks at your ethical decisions, what you believe is right and wrong, how you would define godly, good sexuality versus evil sexuality. He didn't say, I'm going to create a world or put you in a world where everyone will look at that and go, great, thumbs up. Jesus didn't pray that you'd be taken out of a world where you will be hated for those things. He prayed, actually, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. And and for John and the rest of the New Testament, the evil one is not the one who calls you names as a bigot. He's not, his work in the midst of the world is not primarily to see you thrown in jail. His work in the world is not primarily um, to see you slandered. His work in the world is to deceive. To get you to stop trusting Jesus' words and Jesus' name. To stop believing that the gospel is true and that everything that God commands is good. And so Jesus' prayer for us is not that we would live in a safe world where everybody thinks what we think. Brad, that we live in the midst of a world where people don't think what we think, who actually hate what we think, who think what we think is evil and wicked and bad and, and, and maybe should be killed or, or, or at least so badly ostracized that it's really, really hard to hold on to those beliefs. Um, and, and just think about that. Um, that's the world that God has called us to live in right now. And Jesus' prayer is not to get us out of that situation, that incredibly uncomfortable, painful, difficult situation at times. Brother, keep us right in the middle of it. And in the middle of it, he prays, and don't let them be deceived. Um, deceived in such a way that they no longer trust in the grace and the, of, of the gospel of Jesus. And they no longer trust in the words, the very words that might be causing them so much pain with their neighbors. Jesus prays that we'd be protected from deception because that will be the temptation to soften the words of God, to to, to lessen the words of God, to twist the words of God, to hide the words of God so we can get out of a pinch. But Jesus calls us to stand in the midst of all of that and to hold fast to his name and his word. Now, how, do we, how are we protected from the evil one? This was the sign that I'm going over. 
The sound guy's just hitting a button randomly to say, just end it. I'm about to. <laughs> um, how, is, how are we kept from the evil one? Um, I, I want you to notice we don't have time to dive into every occurrence um, I was going to, but that'd be another hour, um, where, where he talks about the name that's been given to us, the whole notion or idea of the name. This is a covenantal concept. Um, uh, for John um, to, to, be, to, to see the name of God revealed and to be given the name of God, this is a huge theme um, in the book of Revelation where John talks about um, what it means to be God's people, um, means that you belong to God. You, you hold fast to the fact that you are no longer your own, you're no longer ostracized from God, but because of the work of Jesus, you now are covenantally bound with God. Um, the, kind of the, the biggest kind of uh, pictures of this, and, and they're very intentionally pictures of this uh, in, in, our, in our culture and in, in the life of the church, um, is how when a husband and wife are married, the wife takes the husband's name. In other words, it is a stepping into a new covenant definition of who you are. Um, but we, in the work of Jesus, by clinging to Jesus, um, in our baptism even, we take on a new name, we receive a new name. And so at the heart of by the, the means by which we are kept from the, the deceptions of the evil one is we hold fast to, we cling to the name that has been given to us in our baptism belong to Jesus. We belong to the Father. Every week when we gather in this room, um, we're not just kind of going through some religious exercises to kind of strengthen everybody every week, um, but rather we, we call it a, a covenant renewal worship service. Every week we gather in this room to renew our vows to God and to be renewed in the promises of God given to us. To, to, to hold fast to and to receive again the name that's been given to us by Jesus. And so how are we kept from the evil one? Receive the name, remember the name, and hold fast to the name you've been given. Second, how? Um, we receive the word, we hold fast to the word. It's a, a massive theme for John in chapters 15 and 17, for Jesus, sorry, and John, in verses 15 and 17. So you take this book, and you decide beforehand, wherever this book leads, I'll follow. I'll believe it. I'll trust it. I'll cling to it. And God has given to us his word. Jesus comes as this glorious, he becomes the, the interpretive center for all of the Bible. That was a mouthful. He's the interpretive center for all of the Bible. And then we hold fast to every single thing that God has spoken to us. We cling to it. How are we kept from deception? Hold fast to the truth. In fact, Jesus in his prayer says, I have sanctified them in the truth. Thing that should set us apart from the world it's not our snazzy clothes. It's not our rigid ideologies. It's not our arrogant self-righteousness. The thing that should sanctify us or set us apart it is an absolute dependence on the words of God. 
That we would be sanctified, declared holy, set apart in the world because we confess and believe every single word that has proceeded from God's mouth. And then last theme racing through this text is that we are to be attentive to joy and attentive to love. Um, oftentimes chapter 17 is used as a primary text to talk about Christian unity. Um, and it is a central part of Jesus' prayer. One of the things I want to point out to you is that unity in John 17 it is not the thing to be aimed at. It's the fruit of being found in the name of God and holding fast to the words of God. And one of the ways that that conversation gets flipped in our day um, is uh, you say, well, you should hold less fast to the words of God um, and to the name of God for the sake of unity. It's the exact opposite in Jesus' prayer. In other words, it's a, it's a commitment to all of the words of God that pre, and, and, and living under the name of God. That, that was like, a, you're really going over. Um, uh, that creates this kind of unity. This kind of unity then should create this kind of life, holding fast to God's words and God's name should produce joy. Not an unhappy, angry lot. Please hear that. The whole conservative political ideology in our day is being known as a very angry group of people. And while there's a lot of, a lot in that movement that we would say is true, you are not to be angry. You're to be happy. You're to be marked by joy. So be attentive to joy. And then we end where we begin. That the kind of life that God has called us to in this world grows out of, is grounded in, and must be constantly attend, attuned to the grace of God. We live this kind of faithful life. We pursue the kind of holiness that, that Jesus prays for here. Not in our own strength, not in our own self-righteousness, not in our own power, but in absolute dependence on the spirit of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. And so when things are confusing and hard as we move forward in the next couple of weeks, attend to this it is God who is at work in us. It is God who is present with us, living out this kind of life, seeking to live this kind of faithful life in the midst of this city, in the midst of different neighborhoods throughout this city, um, right here in this room right now, in, in the hopes that the world, these neighbors, um, uh, the, the world that will hate much of what we say and do and believe will see, know that the Father sent Jesus. Believe. Let's pray.